0: Today's reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. You'll find it on page 1829 of your Pew Bibles. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes. I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, there is a lot in that text that i'm sure if if you were preaching today you would love to expand on more rejoicing in the lord always or thinking on whatever is pure and noble all of those good things it would be lovely to talk about all of that but i want to uh i want to focus sort of on the beginning of this text can you imagine this sort of thing even happening today? I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Think about that. Paul actually names names in the church. Let's, Let's make sure we understand sort of the context here, right? Paul wrote this letter from prison to the church in Philippi and that's to the entire church. And that means that it would have to be read aloud to the entire group of, of believers there. Which means that one Sunday, when everybody gathered for worship, Euodia and Sintiki were there sitting in the congregation, probably on opposite sides of the room, but they were there, maybe doodling on their bulletins, something like that, and listening to Paul's words to the Philippians, right? The Philippians' partnership in the gospel. They were listening to what that was like. And God completing the good work that He had begun in them. They heard about the mind of Christ and how Jesus humbled Himself and became a servant and a man obedient to death. And they heard about pressing on toward the goal, the goal of loving Jesus more and more. They heard all these big sermonic ideas, but then they also suddenly heard their names called. And they were center stage in front of everybody there, called out in public, Euodia, And, Syntyche, I urge you to get along. I urge you to make up. We can only imagine what shade of red their faces must have grown. We don't know much about Euodia or Syntyche. Other than that, they must have been very dear friends to Paul. And they had worked faithfully next to him in the cause of the gospel it's possible that they were leaders in the church. It sounds like they were very active at the least. They were committed, more than likely prominent. Perhaps their roots went all the way back to that initial gathering of the women in Philippi outside the city gate down by the river, the group to which Paul first shared the gospel in Philippi. They were a part of that group, perhaps, listening, hanging on every one of Paul's words, hearing together that there is hope, hope for all of us, hope for every one of us. Euodia and Syntyche were perhaps founding members of the First Reformed Church of Philippi. We don't know. Don't know much about them. Neither do we know much about the details of their falling out. We don't know if it was personal or if it was doctrinal. We don't know if it was about parenting philosophies or playgroup inequities or predestination. We don't know much about the dispute itself, and therefore, actually, it's pretty easy to dismiss, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just a few verses, right? It's easy to jump from verse 1 right into verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Let's just skip this stuff about Euodia and Syntyche. But while we don't know what the dispute was in detail, we probably do know a lot about the fallouts of disputes like this, right? You know what it's like. It's hard to face each other on a Sunday morning, and so you do sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary. And you park your car way on the east side of the parking lot because you know she parks her car on the west side of the parking lot. And even when you're engaged in conversation in the narthex, your eyes are always sort of darting around the room, scanning just in case you might need to make a quick escape. escape. We don't know what the problem was, but we have a pretty good idea of what life was like for Euodia and Syntyche in the church. I'd like you to notice one thing here though, and that is what Paul does not do and what Paul does not say. He doesn't launch into quick methods or practice on how to make all things better. He doesn't offer us up 10 ways to restore a relationship, which I hate to say it is often the first place we tend to go in the church, especially when we're talking about the relationships of others and what they should be doing to get along. Just do a Matthew 18 on them. Forgive and forget. Let bygones be bygones. Just get over it. Make up and move on. What Paul does is he he points to something much larger, something far grander. He takes a, a grand principle of Scripture and he applies it to this Small quarrel. Look at, at verse 1 with me for a moment if you still have your Bibles open. How, how does the text start? It starts with therefore. Some translations have so then. Either way, it's pretty clear that, that Paul is building on something that he's just said. And you put that whole sentence together. Therefore, my brothers, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. That is how. That's how you should stand firm. That's how you keep from getting knocked off balance. That's how you can maintain your equilibrium in life. That's how you should go through life and have some kind of stability while you're doing it. That's how. But what does the that actually refer to? Well, it goes back, I think, to chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. How do we keep our balance in life? How do we maintain our equilibrium through the storms as well as the little dust ups of life? Well, we remember that while we live on earth, we are actually citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And quite frankly, that's often right where we would like to leave it. Why? Because we all know that you can't mix heaven and earth. I mean, it just gets messy. When you do that, it leads to confrontations and apologies and then explanations and conversations and more apologies. And it just gets messy and so it's better to just leave heaven where it is somewhere off in the distant future right somewhere over the rainbow where it can't cause any harm that's often what we do with heaven but paul refuses to do that in fact not only does he point us back to our heavenly citizenship but he also appoints he points us ahead to heaven He has us look again at the realities of the place. I mean, look what comes next in our text. First, it's Euodia and Syntyche. I just want you to get along. And by the way, rejoice in the Lord always. And on and on he goes. Now, our English text takes the words of our, our, our text that were read this morning, and it divides them up into at least three paragraphs. And because of that, I think it's really easy to idea or to isolate the thoughts that you find in those paragraphs. In other words, it's easy to imagine that when Paul was writing these words, he first, you know, addressed a little problem in the church with Euodia and Syntyche and then he put the letter aside for a while and he took the dog for a walk and then he came home and he had a little soup and a nice baguette, and then he sat down after a while and he thought and he picked up his pen again and thought, "Well, now I'm going to write a little about heaven." Because isn't that sort of what we have next in this text? It's, it's a description of heaven. Rejoicing always. Gentleness carrying the day. The nearness of the Lord. No anxieties or worries. Chatting with God about anything and everything that we encounter in a day. And the peace of God. Peace that passes all understanding, Hooper Echo, peace. And completing the thought, our minds consumed not with the news, not with wars and floods and fires, not with Facebook and Instagram, but only with whatever is true and right and noble and pure and good. Think of all the superlatives Paul uses as he writes here. His language is otherworldly. And that's pretty much how we think of heaven. It's otherworldly. But the point is, while you and I separate these paragraphs and tend to separate their subjects at the same time, Paul doesn't. Paul begins by talking about our citizenship in heaven, then he addresses these two women, and then he talks some more about heaven. It's all one thread in Paul's mind. He doesn't chop up the text. He doesn't disconnect heaven from earth. Rather, he connects the two. He ties them together, this little squabble with the joys of heaven. Paul ties the holy to the profane, the superlative to the mundane. The church in heaven to the church on earth. And in doing so, he's telling us that the grandeur of heaven has a direct bearing on the here and now. Even on the nitty-gritty of how we treat each other in the church. But there's, there's still a tension here, isn't there? I think, I think we all feel it. Theologians have have called this the difference between the already and the not yet. Jesus has won our salvation, but but in a sense, there's still work to be done. The work is complete, it's finished, and, and yet it's not finished. There's still this bickering and complaining in the church, relationships gone afoul jesus has given us heaven but we're still we're still on the earth the ideal has not yet become the practical and therefore i think the only path that we often see forward is just to divide the two to separate them to let the ideal be the ideal and the practical be the practical So we pull heaven and earth apart, and we say, you know, maybe someday they'll be together, but it's not going to be now. But if you think about it, it's a really odd thing to separate those two. I mean, think about the church picnic today. What if we were to show up at the church picnic, we all got over to Mitchell Park, and we found that there was no food, right? And the volunteers and the planners, they just looked at us and said, well, we just want you to imagine what a nice picnic would be like. And, and if you can do that, then we really don't need food, right? Well, just imagine it. What would you think about that? Or, or think of the idea, um, this idea of separating the two from a, the point of view of a kindergartner, right? Kindergartners are not real abstract thinkers. In fact, they're fairly black and white, especially on things like this. And so you don't teach a kindergartner the great commandment to love God above everything else. Um, You don't teach them the next commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. You don't teach kindergartners that Jesus actually had to die and shed his blood to pay for our sins. You don't teach them all of those things And then also say, and by the way, when you're in line at the drinking fountain today, Euodia and Syntyche are allowed to butt in wherever they want. You just don't do that. Kindergartners won't go for that. It's not going to fly. It is really kind of an odd thing to try to separate the practical from the ideal. Try to separate heaven from earth. At the same time it's really hard to bring those two things together isn't it kathleen norris in her book amazing grace and i got this from scott jose um, she tells her story of of joining the church for the very first time and it was midlife for her she joined for the best possible reason and that is because she became a christian However, the only church that was available to her in her small South Dakota town was at the time in the throes of a dreadful series of controversies, most of which had been brought on by the farm crisis of the 1980s. Most of you won't remember that. But right there within that same group of people in the church um, were found uh, bankers and the very farmers on whose farms those bankers were foreclosing. And so upon entering the congregation, Norris found a church in in utter turmoil, with its members behaving about as badly as is possible for adults to behave. Things were a mess to the point that she knew the only thing she and the other members could do was to pray. She was a new Christian in need of a church, and this was the only church she had. And so she prayed. She prayed. Here's a brand new believer. And she realized that when the earth is separated from heaven, it's not something we can fix on our own. She prayed. Euodia and Syntiki. <clears throat> What do we want you to do? What should you do? We can't bring heaven and earth together on our own, but we can pray, can't we? We can join or we can pray that the one who joined heaven and earth in the first place will do it again. And we can pray that the one who joined the mind of God with the body of a man, will empower us to do it too. We can pray. Euodia and Syntiki. I plead with you to agree in the Lord. You know how that, how that sentence reads in the Greek? I want you to have in you the mind of Christ. I want you to have in you the same mind, the mind of Christ. Euodia and Syntyche, the mind of Christ is in you, says Paul. Now put flesh around it. Humble yourselves in the manner of Jesus and see if heaven doesn't come down to earth. Friends, we can never forget how Jesus came to earth to bring us heaven there's an incredible story in the gospel of mark where we see this if you haven't read it look it up sometime but jesus is on his way to heal a little girl and he's surrounded by a large mass of people all pressing in on him picture you know halftime at the uh, at camp randall stadium and you're trying to get to the restrooms something like that and in the midst of all of this craziness there's Jesus and suddenly he stops and he says, "Wait a minute, someone touched me." And and everyone looks at him and it's like, "Jesus, are you nuts? Everyone is touching you." But it turns out that a woman did touch Jesus, a sick woman. A woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years and she just wanted to be whole again. And so she reached out and she touched Jesus' robe. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because the purity laws of her religion, the purity laws of the Jews, forbid that woman from even being out in a crowd like this. I mean, her illness rendered her unclean, impure. And in touching Jesus and anyone else that she touched, she was rendering them unclean as well. In other words, even if her illness was not contagious, her impurity was. And she was spreading it everywhere. And that was the direction everything worked in this world before Jesus. It always went from good to bad and from bad to worse But what happens on this particular occasion? Does Jesus become unclean? No. The woman is healed. She became clean. She became pure. In other words, the flow of holiness changed direction. It was reversed. It's like the Chicago River, something we thought could never happen. The flow of holiness changed direction. And Jesus did it. Holiness flowed out from him. And that holiness restored this woman to community, didn't it? And she could be with her family again. She could be with her friends again. She could be with her church again. She could be with the people that she loved. Heaven came down. Heaven flowed out from Jesus. He brought heaven to earth. And by God's grace, He will do it again. By God's grace, He will do it over and over and over until heaven is fully here. If we humble ourselves, if we have in us the mind of Christ, the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, By God's grace because we really do need God's grace when we try to hold these two things together two things that are radically juxtaposed to one another juxtaposed like heaven and earth you realize that you cannot do it on your own you need help you need God's help you need grace when you're hanging on to heavenly ideals, but you're fighting like Euodia and Syntyche, you pray for God's grace to help you forgive. And when the hurt is so deep that you can't seem to reconcile, you pray for God's grace to hang on to that ideal until someday you might in the meantime, you pray not to become bitter and cynical and hopeless. And that's Paul's message for us. It's never hopeless because Jesus has done it. Jesus humbled Himself. Jesus took on flesh, the flesh of earth, and He trusted God to give Him the glory of heaven. He trusted God for that. And Jesus calls us to be like-minded. He calls us to humble ourselves in the manner of our Savior, to put on the mind of Christ, and to trust that God will wrap that mind in the flesh of heaven. What's he saying to Euodia and Syntyche? He's saying, Euodia and Syntyche, humble yourselves. Just humble yourselves like your Savior did. You know, you know the end result when Jesus did this. What happened? God glorified Him. He brought heaven to earth. Euodia and Syntyche, humble yourselves and see if God doesn't bring heaven to earth again. May we all have the grace the grace to have in us the mind of Christ and to trust that God will put flesh on it. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have given us this sacrament that waits for us. And it's a sacrament, Lord, that we can touch that we can taste because you did not remain locked up, caged in heaven, but you came down to this earth and took on flesh. And Lord, as we chew this bread and taste this wine this morning, we pray that you will use it to remind us again that Jesus took on flesh. He brought heaven to earth, and He will do so again by Your power and by Your grace right here in this place. Give us Your Spirit. Give us the obedience, the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.